0: Welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 5th, 2023. I'm your reader, Sharon Faldudo, and we start with, from the front page of today's Gazette, Winter Homeless Count Hits Record High in Lynn. It follows a record summer count of unsheltered people. This is the third installment of an occasional series by Elijah Decius of the Gazette, Cedar Rapids. As the temperature plummeted to 15 degrees in the early hours of January 26th, volunteer John Green continued to call out in the darkness to find people living on the street. Illuminated only by the beam of a flashlight, he spent most of his night calling out to piles of blankets, coats, and possessions left in nooks and crannies. All over the city. Though most spaces were uninhabited, he continued talking to each new location, as if a real person was there whether he knew it or not. On his last stop for the night, Green called out to the darkness under a bridge once more. This time, a voice responded. Burrowed two feet into a pile of rough, large rocks, Jeffrey Himes, 27, slept on a rug with multiple layers of blankets and sleeping bags to survive. I'm actually warm, he insisted, but I didn't know it was going to snow. For the last three months, the area under this particular bridge is the place he's called home. This winter is his third bout of homelessness in the last three years. After coming to Cedar Rapids to help a friend, the native of Sparta, Tennessee had a falling out with his roommate and was left with no other acquaintances to affordably bunk with. Soon after, he lost his ID and other identifying documents. He has worked on and off doing concrete construction work, but with no documents, no phone, and no contact with his parents, housing and work is difficult to secure. And despite bone-chilling temperatures, the winter overflow shelter operated by Willis Dady Homeless Services was not an option for a few reasons. It gets old carrying everything, he said, for one. With a shopping cart full of valuables, moving possessions day in, day out from the overnight shelter isn't practical. But the prospect of sleeping in a crowded room full of strangers is a bridge too far for the man trying to stay away from drugs and alcohol. With low-barrier shelters open to any homeless person to keep them out of deadly temperatures, his personal stumbling blocks are found too easily in close quarters with others who share the same struggles, he said. This is what I'd call a safe spot for me, he said under the bridge. I go out of my way not to ask for things. There, he's lulled to sleep each night by what he calls a white noise machine, the overhead traffic. That night, volunteers found 30 others like him, a new Lynn County record for the annual winter point in time count that's conducted across the country. Last winter, the unsheltered count for Lynn County was 19 people. The winter record follows a new summer record in July 2022, when the number of unsheltered people living on the streets eclipsed triple digits to 107, more than triple the number three years prior. The record number comes despite the fact that the overflow winter shelter could have accommodated all of them. That night, 66 of the shelter's 100 beds were occupied. It speaks to the fact that shelter is not the solution and we need to focus on quality housing in this community that meets the needs of high barrier individuals, said Janae Peterman, Director of Housing Services for the Waypoint nonprofit, Those experiencing homelessness for long periods of time need higher intervention than what is currently available. A concerning new trend has accompanied the record unsheltered winter count this year, the number of people sleeping in their vehicles. This January, those in cars represented a majority of the 30 unsheltered people counted. Over the last few years, Peterman estimates Waypoint has seen a 50% increase in people counted in cars. The trend has impacted the routes volunteers take in recent years, which now feature multiple parking lots and encourage the counters to make a point of checking vehicles they come across. In parking lots throughout the city, they look for signs of people inside, foggy windows, exhaust coming from the tailpipe, blankets or possessions piled inside, and people who may be sleeping out of view. For suspected vehicles who don't answer a knock on the window, notations are made on the vehicle type and license plate for later outreach. The trend may be indicative of those who may be new to homelessness, those with pets who cannot go to a shelter, and those with unique medical needs. Those struggling chronically with housing insecurity often lose their vehicles with time. Each January, on a night designated by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, designated lead agencies organize point-in-time counts for their area. Here, Waypoint organizes volunteers to conduct a census of all homeless people in Lynn, Benton, and Jones counties, sheltered and unsheltered. The biannual counts, conducted by Willis Dady, Haycap, Waypoint, and community volunteers, helps calculate the size of the homeless population, including the number of people sleeping in places not meant for habitation. Information from street outreach personnel, calls for services, the Cedar Rapids Police Department, and other county sheriff's departments is used to draw a map with multiple routes and stops for various volunteer teams. This winter, routes divided by quadrant took about three hours to complete with 17 volunteers. From about 11.30 p.m. to 12.30 a.m., volunteers scour every corner of the routes under bridges, at parks, rest stops, railroad tracks, parking lots, and car wash bays. Counts are done at night to minimize complications from daytime movements and accurately find as many people as possible. In recent years, those living on the streets have become more vigilant in staying out of sight. The Cedar Rapids Police Department has gotten more involved with moving people along, so people are hiding more, said Peterman. It's getting harder. At each stop, people are asked simple demographic questions, how long they've been living on the streets or in emergency shelters, the number of times they've been homeless in the last three years, and the zip code of their last permanent residence. If they choose, they can also identify their disabilities, veteran status, and whether they're fleeing domestic violence. In the summer, extra teams are added to check the entirety of the bike trail from Hiawatha to Tate Commons Memorial Park, and volunteers are dispatched during the day to campsites in Benton and Jones Counties. Last year's record hitting July count did not conclude until 5 a.m. Though summer counts are not required by HUD for federal funding, advocates and nonprofits say the warm weather census is a more accurate picture of the homeless population. On a night that's snowing, your cousin might let you stay for the night, but that's it, said Waypoint's Peterman. After each count, results written on paper are tallied, combed through for those who may have been counted twice, and entered into a statewide system at the Des Moines based Institute for Community Alliances which manages a homeless management information system for 96 of Iowa's 99 counties, as well as for many other states. After analysis and data cleanup, the numbers are compiled into large tables and submitted directly to HUD. HUD then analyzes the counts from across the country and releases the results to Congress. The count reports are made available to organizations and the public within about two months of each census. Each interaction on the count takes only a few minutes, but volunteers use the encounters as a chance to do more than tally the numbers. With a population that is difficult to reach in conventional ways during business hours, it's an invaluable opportunity to build rapport and connect individuals to services. For Green, an outreach worker for HACAP's Supportive Services for Veterans Family program, it's a chance to make sure they get on the right path to housing. This year was his first helping with a count in Iowa, after doing it a few times in the San Francisco Bay Area, where the sheer size of the homeless population has become a mounting crisis. After a bout with homelessness himself, he has a perspective he said even some volunteers don't understand. I don't think some of these volunteers realize that I've never been so scared in my life, Green said, all the emotions that go into it. He understands why some people don't go to the shelter, even though it had room. They're so crowded it's unbearable, he said, for many. There are some very intelligent people that live outside that just don't want to come inside. And to the people from whom he hears, I don't deserve help, frequently, he offers blankets, coats hydration, food, or even a smile and a listening ear because he knows how far the little things go for those living in desperate and lonely circumstances. Green and volunteers on his route continue to show up for the count because of the difference it makes in their day-to-day work. You have to approach each client differently. You don't know exactly what their situation is, Green has learned. That's where the empathy comes in. And also from the front page, new law could lead to higher pay for private school teachers by Grace King of the Gazette. Education savings accounts, tuition provided by the state for private school, could allow private schools to increase teacher and administrator salaries, reducing the pay gap between private and public school educators. Teachers at St. Joseph's School, a Catholic school in Marion, are paid about 15% less than teachers at public schools in the area, Principal Casey Ketman said. The public school teacher salary in Iowa generally ranges between 44778 and 65385 They come here because they want to be part of something bigger, Ketman said. They do it for the joy of teaching. Ketman hopes education savings accounts can help close the pay gap. With the cost of tuition largely, if not entirely, covered by the accounts, private schools could redirect financial support from parishes and fundraising to increase staff salaries. Under a new law signed by Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds last month, all public school students and thousands of private school students will become eligible to receive a roughly $7,600 education savings account per year to pay for tuition and other expenses at a private school. The program is expected to cost 107 million dollars in the first year and by 2027 when phased in will cost 345 million dollars. Public school districts will receive an estimated 1,205 dollars in funding from the state for each student who lives in the district but attends a private school, not only for students who choose to leave for private schools but students who already are in them. Zach Zesker, chief administrator of LaSalle Catholic Schools in Cedar Rapids, said private school teachers sacrifice a lot financially. The highest paid teacher in LaSalle schools with a master's degree, 15 continuing education credits, and 21 years of experience teaching will make $67,000 next school year, he said. Private school teachers also don't have access to IPERS, the state's largest public retirement system. While some private schools put money into 401ks and other workplace savings plans for retirements, the benefits aren't the same, Zesker said. Lynn Devaney, Diocese of Davenport Superintendent of Schools, said its schools are also considering reducing, but not eliminating, parish financial support of Catholic education. Tuition also could be adjusted over a period of time to better reflect the actual cost of education, she said. The school financial structures are being reviewed and discussed with school boards, pastors, parish councils, and families. The diocese is aware that this legislation is controversial among Iowans, Devaney said in an email to the Gazette. It is our hope that expressed differences of opinion do not become so divisive that we lose sight of our common goal to produce educated, involved citizens of Iowa who contribute to the common good of their chosen community. Philosophically, our approaches may be different, but the outcome remains the same. Turning to the Iowa Today and the Week in Iowa, a recap of news from across the state under the heading In the News, Public School Funding Moving Through Legislature, Iowa's public K-12 schools would see a funding boost of $106.8 million under a bill moving through the Iowa House and Senate. The Senate passed the bill Thursday, and it is eligible for a floor vote in the House. That amounts to a 3% increase over last year, the largest percent increase given to Iowa schools since 2015. But with inflation at record highs over the last year, public school advocates and Democrats said the funding was not enough to stave off budget cuts and loss of programming. Democrats called for a boost of around 6%. Rita Hart elected chair of Iowa Democratic Party. Rita Hart will lead the Iowa Democratic Party after being elected to the role last weekend. Hart, a former state senator, ran for lieutenant governor and U.S. Congress. She said she would focus on winning elections and building a stronger campaign apparatus. Property tax fix means less for cities. Lawmakers' attempts to fix a mistake in property tax calculation could mean lower bills for Iowans but leave cities and counties scrambling to find money for public services as they work to finalize their budgets for next year. The Iowa Senate this past week passed a bill changing the rollback date that establishes how residential properties are taxed in an attempt to address the error. LGBTQ students speak against proposed laws. LGBTQ students pleaded with lawmakers last week not to pass a pair of bills dealing with gender identity instruction and notifying parents of a student's gender identity in schools. Students and activists said the bills would increase bullying of transgender students and could put them in dangerous situations with non-supportive parents. Supporters said the bills would keep school instruction age-appropriate and keep parents informed of their children's gender identity. Educators also warned the bill could force them to violate both state and federal law, including Title IX, which prohibits sex-based discrimination and harassment in schools. Guidance from the Iowa Department of Education states the preference for use of pronouns should be the choice of the student. Chuck Grassley back in business. Republican U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley was back in the Senate last week after undergoing surgery in January to repair a fracture in his hip. Grassley appeared in a wheelchair at a Senate Agriculture Committee hearing. He told reporters Wednesday he did a stupid thing while in the kitchen of his Washington, D.C. townhouse that led to the injury. Bill to limit trucking lawsuits advances. Iowa House lawmakers narrowly advanced a bill to the floor last week that would cap non-economic damages in lawsuits involving trucking companies and other commercial vehicles. The bill faces some opposition from the Republican majority, but House Speaker Pat Grassley says they have the votes to pass it this year. Under the heading, they said, When my mom told me about this bill, I felt angry. I deserve to be valued and protected. But this bill does, not, does the opposite of that. Barry Stevens, a non-binary middle school student on the effects of a bill banning instruction on gender identity. And, we have and will remain to be consistent with our funding. It's predictable and it is affordable for Iowa. Republican Representative Craig Johnson, Vice Chair of the House Education Committee. Under the heading Odds and Ends, Pipeline Trespass Charged to Get Trial. A judge ruled a trespassing charge should go to trial over a surveyor from Summit Carbon Solutions who attempted to evaluate a northwest Iowa property in August. Summit argued Iowa law gives the company a right to survey property after notifying the landowner, but the Dickinson County attorney said the company should have obtained an injunction. Assisted living communities close. Six Iowa assisted living facilities and nursing homes have been forced to close after the owner told state officials they no longer are able to meet the needs of the residents under the heading water cooler. COVID cases fall. Iowa's COVID-19 cases fell for the fourth straight week. The state reported 1,495 cases in the week ending Wednesday compared to 1,566 the previous week. There were 135 people hospitalized with the virus compared to 154 the previous week. And veterans fund replenished temporarily. Governor Kim Reynolds last week approved more than $440,000 in federal pandemic relief to a state fund that gives emergency financial assistance to veterans. The fund ran out for the first time in a decade in October, and lawmakers are working on a more permanent fix. Turning to the Insight page, Althea Cole in her To a Candid World column writes, Iowa Republicans rose from ruins. Can Iowa Democrats do the same? A week and a day ago, the Iowa Democratic Party gathered over Zoom because apparently they hate themselves, to conduct party business, which included the election of new officers to lead the party. Two hours into that meeting, which began a little after 9 a.m., members of the state central committee were still bickering over the agenda and whether or not members from two newly created constituency caucuses should have the right to vote for party officers. By the time the four officers were all elected, it was almost 6 p.m. What a day. I couldn't bring myself to join the Zoom call. I engaged in my own method of torture by watching a painful cyclone game. But I did follow along with the updates from a couple of reporters who live-tweeted the event, and on more than one occasion, I had to put my smartphone down and laugh. I don't laugh out of disdain for Iowa Democrats. National Democrats already have more than enough of that. I laugh out of empathy because my people, evil Republicans, have had their own party crises in the not-so-distant past. Having experienced so much of it on my own side, I find a bit of comfort and humor in knowing that in many ways, Republicans and Democrats are so, so similar. Obviously, the similarities don't apply to policy positions, but that and certain structural details aside, state Democrats and Republicans are quite alike in that they both have their scandals and squabbles and factions of membership with dramatically different points of view, whose arguments can become personal and whose conflicts become bitter. Both have gone through periods of repeated turnover in leadership at some point over the last 12 years, usually timed after some kind of spectacular failure, and at some point during that same time frame, both have seen their fundraising slow to a trickle. Sure, the current focus is on Democrats because of their recent election losses and organizational failures, but Republicans, we've been there, we've done that. It may be hard to picture the current Republican Party of Iowa as anything but strong, and dare I say it, united, under the leadership of its titan Jeff Kaufman, who recently began his fifth full term as chairman, but when Kaufman was first elected only months before the 2014 election, the state party was clawing back from a multitude of failures during the 2012 cycle. Kaufman's election in June 2014 came on the heels of a no-confidence vote against outgoing Chairman Danny Carroll. Carroll had served for less than three months after succeeding A.J. Spiker, who was elected in early 2012 to fill the vacancy left by Matt Strawn. Strawn resigned the Iowa Iowa GOP chairmanship four weeks after the 2012 caucuses, when missing paperwork and other counting errors in the presidential poll dominated media headlines and complicated the determination of a winner. Most see the totaling error as the only blow that left a bruise on the Iowa GOP in 2012. Longtime party activists also describe the 2012 Iowa GOP caucuses as the night that Liberty Republicans, a faction of supporters of 2012 presidential candidate Ron Paul, organized to take over the state party by assembling delegates to attend the spring conventions and elect Paul-aligned representatives to the GOP State Central Committee. Liberty Republicans, or Paulsheviks as they were called by disgruntled party activists, were better at mobilizing delegates than they were at mobilizing voters. After breaking a Democrat trifecta in state government only two years earlier, Iowa Republicans would perform dismally in the 2012 elections, failing to pick up any seats in the Iowa Senate and losing several in the Iowa House. With Spiker at the helm, Liberty Republicans drove the party into the ground, alienating many activists and donors alike and causing fundraising to dry up. Nursing a grudge over what was done to their party, longtime activists struck back the 2014 2014 conventions and ousted the Liberty Faction from leadership. No longer flanked by loyalists, Spiker resigned as party chair in March 2014. He was replaced by Carroll, whose three-month tenure bore no real effort to unite the party or restore fundraising. On June 28, 2014, the newly seated GOP State Central Committee ousted Carroll in favor of Kaufman. When Kaufman took the reins, the party had a paltry $11,000 cash on hand, not even enough to make payroll. So let's review. A caucus crisis, rapid turnover in leadership, a starving piggy bank, and angry activists. Does that sound familiar to Iowa Democrats? If so, you've made my point. Republicans and Democrats are alike in so many ways, and with new leadership now firmly in place for the Democrats, the question becomes, will they be alike in their rebuilding? While no one enjoyed the parliamentary quarreling at last Saturday's meeting, I submit that the measure of a strong political party isn't necessarily a harmonious tone of meetings, I write that, having sat through some of the most god-awful Republican meetings a person could ever experience. Nor is the measure of a strong party their positions or their ideas. The measure of a strong party is their ability to win. A good indicator of the ability to win is the ability to raise money. Kaufman understood right away in 2014 that even with a heavily favored gubernatorial candidate and nationwide momentum favoring Republicans, the state GOP would need cash to compete. He set an ambitious fundraising goal of $300,000 in three months to get his party back on track and met it. Rita Hart also understands the role money plays in party wins, as well as its absence in party losses. Hart, a former state senator, candidate for lieutenant governor and Congress, was elected as the new chairwoman of the Iowa Democratic Party during that miserably long Saturday meeting, where she committed to building the fundraising infrastructure necessary to future Democratic Party victories. But while strong new leadership should provide a similar boost to Iowa Democrats as it did for Iowa Republicans, the difference in the fundraising landscape cannot be understated. The timing of Republicans' building was rather fortuitous. They did so while big-name national politicians looking to test the waters in our first-in-the-nation caucus state came to stump for Iowa GOP candidates. With President Joe Biden signaling that he intends to run as the incumbent for re-election, Iowa Democrats will not have presidential wannabes running all over the state, enticing Democrat voters to help rebuild their state party organization. Even without an incumbent for president in 2024, a boost to the Iowa Democratic Party from national Democratic candidates looks unlikely. As I write this, the DNC is gathering for its winter meetings. Although my deadline is the day before the DNC is expected to ratify proposed changes to its presidential nominating order, I feel safe assuming that by the time you read this column, the DNC will have officially stripped Iowa of its first-in-the-nation spot and established punitive measures to scare prospective presidential candidates away from visiting Iowa. So Democrats and Republicans are alike in many ways, but they're not identical. Neither are the challenges they face. Iowa Democrats should prepare for a long and arduous rebuilding process amid circumstances that, at the moment, seem pretty bleak. But the one good thing about starting from the bottom is there's nowhere to go but up. And Todd Dorman, in his 24-Hour Dorman column, writes, School choice isn't enough for Iowa Republicans. We just got done handing billions of state dollars over the next decade to Iowa families who want to send their kids to private school. It was sold under the benign banner of school choice. But behind that simple slogan was an onslaught of fabricated attacks on public schools, hammering on books in their libraries, efforts to support LGBTQ students and how they teach our nation's history, especially pertaining to racism. You'd think now that their conservative constituents have a state-funded golden parachute to escape public schools, Republicans might ease up on their attacks. They now own the libs, although the purchase price was exceedingly high. But you'd be wrong. Apparently, choice isn't enough. It never is with this GOP majority and governor. The latest sword hanging over public schools is House Study Bill 112. In 2021, the legislature famously passed a law prohibiting any curriculum or staff training that teaches, advocates, or encourages Stereotyping and scapegoating toward others on the basis of demographic, group membership, or identity. Allow me to translate. Republicans don't want to make white kids learn about racism that has shaped our nation and continues to plague our society and institutions. It might make them uncomfortable. HSB 112 weaponizes that 2021 law. The bill would create a process where students and parents can go to the Department of Education website and report teachers and staff they believe are violating the law by teaching divisive concepts. The department would then investigate, and if it finds the report is valid, it would give the local school board 14 days to correct the violation. If the local school board doesn't act, the district would face a civil penalty of up to $5,000. As the bill is currently written, neither do the district nor the accused educator get a chance to mount a defense. All reports would be compiled and reported to the legislature each July. Surely they'll be the source of some real rousing speeches on the campaign trail, context not included. Teach the legislators preferred brand of history or else. Hell of a way to celebrate Black History Month. Backers say this bill is needed because they've heard districts are breaking the law. This cannot stand. But hey, nobody promised being the thought police would be easy. The Senate is considering a bill that would ban any teaching about gender identity in grades K-8. The House is also considering a bill banning lessons regarding LGBTQ people in grades K-3. through Add those to House File 180, which prohibits districts from offering support to transgender students without parental permission and requires school staff to inform parents if a student has or is transitioning, and you have created a chilling effect on educators that makes a polar vortex seem balmy. Staff must be informants on students. Parents are informants on staff. Maybe that 2022 bill requiring surveillance cameras in classrooms will make a comeback. So go ahead, teachers. March into this culture-warm minefield every day. Watch what you say. Watch what you teach. Watch how you decorate your classrooms. The Golden Dome of Wisdom is watching. Truth is no defense. This stuff should do wonders for Iowa's teacher shortage. What about the kids being targeted? A few came to bravely testify before state house subcommittees this past week to urge lawmakers to step away from these efforts to deny them support at school and erase their lives from lesson plans. At best, their pleas fell on deaf ears. At worst, they were mocked by bill backers, convinced being transgender isn't a real thing, but is a real threat. Talk about heartless and clueless. With that cruel calculation as a backdrop, backers want state power wielded to further marginalized, already marginalized kids, who face higher rates of homelessness and suicide than other kids. They demand that schools out them to their parents, even if the kids fear how their families will react. Lawmakers can't worry about a few broken lives as they lead us down the path of righteousness. Reckless indifference is a feature, not a flaw, in this agenda. Never mind that Iowa law prohibits discrimination based on gender identity, but a bill was introduced this past week to do away with that too, and so much for parental choice. Parents who want their children to learn history without a code of whitewash and about the lives of LGBTQ people who exist in the real world, in an inclusive environment for all kids, will have very little choice. Public schools will be governed by some Iowans rigid version of Christianity and of history that bears little resemblance to reality. Or you can go to a private likely religious school but probably not if your kid is lgbtq good luck iowa's once valued public schools are under siege a barrage of bills is coming so fast it's hard to keep track a source of state pride has become the target of dishonest disdain call up the litter box legions the bathroom battalions and the don't say gay dragoons this is war on kids who can't fight back working to create high quality public schools was an iowa idea Now we just march in lockstep with a bunch of other red states checking off boxes on the National GOP Playbook. We can only imagine what these Republicans will think up next. Or maybe we should save time and just thank Ron DeSantis, because no matter what they approve this year, it won't be enough. It never is. And turning to the community letters and the editorial cartoon from Michael Ramirez, a syndicated cartoonist distributed by Creator Syndicate. It's a drawing with the White House in the deep background. In the foreground is a gaping pit that is labeled national debt and the thought bubble coming from the White House says let's brag about infrastructure. The first letter is from David Hamilton of Iowa City. The fracking and fracture of Iowa is underway. Searching for a rationale for Republican neglect of small communities, of public education at all levels, of parks and recreation, of the health of rivers and streams, and more, it occurred to me that Iowa has become a site for fracking. The fracking of Iowa, horizontal rather than vertical, extracting all that can be drawn from our resources with little concern for what's left over. I know it's a metaphor, but metaphors point at something. Fracking comes from fracture, and it's the fracture of much that's at stake, with its grotesque horizontal shadow emerging in pipelines assembled to conduct carbon away from its manufactured source. All with the further doubtful rationale of ethanol being healthier for the environment than the industry of its making. David Hamilton of Iowa City. Next, Ron Andresen of Center Junction writes, Cartoon selection reveals bias. I just looked back at the first 30 opinion page cartoons of this year and my hunch was confirmed. 19 were aimed negatively at Republican GOP officials and a whopping two toward the Democrats. Nine others were non-judgmental or could be taken both ways. All your readers are aware of the Gazette's bias, but come on, it really swung a lot of red side voters to the blue side last November. Ron Andresen, Center Junction next sam osborne of west branch writes kim reynolds has abandoned public trust and public schools governor kim reynolds has failed to assume responsibility for the conduct of the highest office of public trust and responsibility in the state of iowa this is a position she sought assumed by oath of office and for which she receives remuneration to wit it is her obligation to make public schools such effective instruments of education that parents can unhesitatingly expect to choose them and entrust them with the education of their children Reynolds is neither paid nor emplaced as vicar of a parochial school, the grand poobah of the country club, or any other private venture to be chosen for membership on one's own. Reynolds' abandonment of this responsibility of public service is a monumental admission of failure. Sam Osborne of West Branch And Daniel McGrail of Cedar Rapids writes, Why the secrecy in CR Superintendent Search? Why does the Cedar Rapids School Board follow a closed-to-the-public process in selecting a new school school superintendent? I refer to the advisory meetings that were by invitation only and the search that was conducted in secret. Does it have anything to do with the new superintendent's previous school system? The Grand Island, Nebraska public school system boasted of its students having 43% proficiency in mathematics and reading, below average even in Nebraska, and a graduation rate of 83% per niche.com and publicschoolreview.com. Perhaps with a new superintendent's expertise, within a few years, Cedar Rapids students may also be at the 43% level of proficiency, rather than the 65% at present. Why does the Gazette meekly submit to these school board secrecy shenanigans? Daniel McGrail of Cedar Rapids. Lauren Tiffany of Iowa City writes, Columnist Cole blithely ignores real school issues. Althea Cole's Sunday column, Do Public Schools Reflect a Gold Standard of Transparency, celebrates her dream come true. Iowa finally passed a voucher bill to funnel tax money to private religious school systems. Althea assures us vaguely that the voucher bill is a good thing. Because government processes are never executed perfectly, and also private institutions face a surprising number of identical standards when it comes to accreditation. I'm pretty sure that private religious schools don't execute their processes perfectly either, Althea, and I'm not convinced by your blithe assertion about accreditation. Althea finally gets around to the issue of transparency in paragraph five, admitting that private school operations are not subject to scrutiny from the public as a whole. And that right there is the crux of the matter. If private religious schools are not subject to scrutiny from the public as a whole, then how does the Iowa legislature justify voting to give them $1 billion of public money over the next four years? The final letter is from Linda Barshow of Marion. The Kim Reynolds Academy will offer different choices. Now that the governor's school choice proposal has been passed by the majority of Republican legislators allowing public money to fund private schools, we may be seeing another school choice for children. Perhaps there will be the Kim Reynolds Academy. Language arts classes will teach reading skills, but the literature list will be of a limited nature. Science classes will be offered, but they may not necessarily be fact-based. Social studies lessons on history may be whitewashed a little. Math classes will have story problems about funds, where less may not be a negative. The academy may require that boys be boys and girls be girls. The academy will prepare them to be future-ready for their diverse environment as the next generation of Iowa-educated citizens. There will be so many things for these children to learn, they will probably miss the lesson on sarcasm. Linda Barshow of Merriam. You are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 5th, 2023 on the Iowa Radio Reading and Information Service. I'm your reader, Sharon Feldudo, and we turn to today's obituaries. Barbara Sabo, age 91, of Cedar Rapids, died Tuesday, January 31st. Visitation starts at 11 a.m., with services starting at 1 p.m. Tuesday, February 7th at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home in Cedar Rapids. Charles D. Beamer, age 77, of Cedar Rapids, passed away February 1st from esophageal cancer. A visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, February 7th, at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. A funeral service will be held at 11 a.m. Wednesday, February 8th, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories. Interment will follow at Spring Grove Cemetery in Covington. Chuck worked in management for most of his 44 years at Midland Forge. His favorite hobbies were fishing, hunting, and woodworking. He enjoyed spending time at his farm, being outside on his tractor. Chuck's proudest hunting moments were placing ninth in a North American big game competition held by Pope and Young Club and getting a worser two years later. Ricky Ricky Lynn Lake, or Rick Lynn Lake, known as Ricky, age 62, of Palo, passed away on February 1st from a short illness. A private celebration of life will be held by the family entrusted with the arrangements is Iowa cremation. Ricky enjoyed reading, fishing, building things, his little dog, Princess, Solitude, and family. Jimmy Ann Gauss of Cedar Rapids, formerly of Swisher, passed away at Unity Point St. Luke's Hospital on February 2nd. Jimmy Ann was born 1938. She was a registered nurse at St. Luke's Hospital for 29 years, and she was a member of the Shueyville United Methodist Church. Visitation will be held Thursday, February 9th at the Shueyville United Methodist Church starting at 10 a.m., followed by a celebration of life service at 11 a.m. Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids are in charge of arrangements. David Lowell English, age 85, of Marion, passed away on Tuesday, January 31st at the Dennis and Donna Oldorf Hospice House of Mercy in Hiawatha. In agreement with his wishes, cremation has taken place and a private family memorial service will be held at a later date. David was a carpenter, home builder, and supervisor at Rindernecht Construction, retiring in 2006. He was a member of St. Pius Catholic Church and the local carpenters union. David was a simple man who enjoyed restoring cars, furniture making, and watching the Iowa Hawkeye sports. David William Omen, aka Davo, died in a tragic accident on February 1st. He was born in 1972. He spent the majority of his formative years with his family in Mount Vernon, skateboarding, telling punny jokes, running with his friends, and seeking out that harmless general mischief he was so skilled at finding. Family and friends will gather from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturday, February 18th at Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Service, Mount Vernon, with a sharing of memories beginning at 11 a.m. and a lunch following. Casual attire is requested. Irene Nicholson Dunbar of Iowa City died January 25th after a brief illness. A private gathering for her immediate family was held at Gay and Chia Funeral Home the evening of January twenty-eighth. Known for her keen mind and strong but gentle spirit, Irene was an English teacher at Greece Athena High School in New York. Although teaching came to her naturally, it didn't come quickly as she left Vassar College early to marry and raise a family. After many years of caring for her family's needs, she taught her teenage sons to cook and returned to college. She received BA and MA degrees from the State University of New York College at Fredonia, after which she simultaneously began teaching and doctoral study at the University of Rochester, earning a Ph.D. in English in 1986. Irene was an avid gardener her entire life, and especially so in retirement. Her immaculate yard was always in bloom during the summer months, and in the depths of winter her house was full of seedlings for planting in the spring. Iowa Hospice Gardens and online condolences to GayandChia.com. Eloise Leanne Monk, age 80, of Marion, died January 29th in Orlando, where she wintered. Eloise spent her working years raising her children and assisting in the Monk Law Office. She and her husband also owned and operated two abstract companies during those later years. A memorial service will take place in Grundy Center on the late spring of 2023 with future interment at the Iowa Veterans Cemetery in Van Meter, Iowa. Teresa Elaine Jones Johnson, age 50, of Cedar Rapids, passed away peacefully on Wednesday, January 25th at Mercy Medical Center. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, February 9th at Brosh Chapel in the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids, 2121 Bowling Street, Southwest. Homegoing services will be 11 a.m. Friday, February 10th at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church. Burial will be in Oak Hill Cemetery. Michael Kohler, known as Mike, age 60, died unexpectedly January 31st. He was a great guy. Mike was kind, likable, energetic, loving, and a lifelong bachelor. Mike also struggled with mental health issues the last dozen or so years of his life. He fought them valiantly. However, in the end, he succumbed to his illness. Services are pending and will be announced later. Entrusted with the arrangements is Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Charles Richard Swartzendruber of Columbia, Missouri. Heaven gained an amazing soul. On January 21, 2023, Charles was one week shy of his 86th birthday. Cremation has taken place, and a later celebration of life will be planned. Dick was president of Vigortone Ag Products, a licensed massage therapist, worked with assisted living adults, and played Santa Claus for five years. Marlis M. Tandy, age 87, of Cedar Rapids, passed away Saturday, January 21st, at Cottage Grove Place. Funeral services will be held at 11 a.m. Saturday, March 25th, at Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Marion, with visitation one hour prior to services. Burial will follow at Rhinebeck Cemetery in Rhinebeck. Marlis taught school at Monticello, Dysart, and Marion school districts. She returned to the University of Northern Iowa and earned her BA degree and taught for the Waterloo Community School District for 20 years, retiring in 1998. Marlis joined PEO in Rhinebeck in 1954. She was a member of the PEO Chapter KG in Marion. She was a member of the First Congregational Church of Christ in Waterloo, and Marlis will be greatly missed. William T. Carrithers, born June 20, 1951, passed away January 19, 2023. Bill worked in many clinics in his lifetime, providing addiction and alcohol counseling. As a therapist, Bill was passionate about group therapy and mindfulness. He volunteered with the Red Cross to counsel victims of natural disasters such as Hurricane Katrina and the devastating wildfires in Oregon. He also helped coach men's soccer at Springfield Technical Community College in Massachusetts. In 1992, Bill was inducted into the Coe College Athletics Hall of Fame, becoming the third generation of Carithers to be so honored. Julie K. Brandt, age 63, of Marion, died on Saturday, January 28, from complications of leukemia. After college, Julie enjoyed country western dancing, rodeos, theater, and skiing. She earned her BA at the University of Northern Iowa, and a Master of Taxation from the University of Denver. She and her husband owned Colorado Rockies tickets for 10 years and Denver Nuggets tickets as well. Julie's career started in public accounting in Denver. She then moved into corporate tax career with US West, Media One, AT&T Broadband in Denver, and Transamerica in Cedar Rapids. She ended her career in public accounting in Cedar Rapids. She was a member of the Lutheran Church of the Resurrection and a 45-year member of PEO. Services will be held at noon on Saturday, February 11th, at the Lutheran Church of the Resurrection in Marion, with visitation beginning at 9 a.m. prior to services. Tracy A. Klein, age 62, of Central City, passed away on Friday, January 27th. A celebration of life will be held in the spring. Tracy worked at Quaker Oats and created his second family for seven years, and previously owned Del High Locker, fulfilling one of his lifelong dreams. His other dream was to own a lake cabin in Minnesota, which was also fulfilled. Tracy's favorite thing was helping his grandkids learn to do what he loved to do, fishing, deer hunting, and mushroom hunting. Turning to the sports page in college basketball, Perkins brings the heat. Junior guard smashes his career high with 32 points by Mike Loss of the Gazette in Iowa City. An orange and blue balloon sailed into Iowa's airspace Saturday afternoon, but Tony Perkins shot it down. The junior guard had the game of his career. His team needed every shred of it in its 81-79 win over the Illini at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. Perkins scored 25 of his 32 points in the second half and eclipsed his personal best by 10 points. He made 15 of 16 free throws and an array of pull-up, mid-range jumpers that seemed to leave Illinois players in the dust each time. Perkins' mother, Renita Henderson of Indianapolis, summed it up as efficiently as one of her son's moves with the ball Saturday. It was awesome, she said. Other than the small pockets of Illinois fans spread around the arena, the sellout crowd of 15,056 agreed. The win left both teams at 7-5 in the Big Ten. The Illini arrived with seven victories in their last eight games. Iowa heads to first place Purdue on Thursday with three three straight triumphs and seven in the last nine games. Perkins tied an Iowa single-game record, Andre Woolridge, 1997, by making 15 straight free throws. Should have broke it, he said. He said, his lone miss was with 10 seconds left, and Iowa ahead 81-78. to Perkins drew nine fouls. All of his 15 free throws were in the second half. When Illinois lost him on defense, he kept cashing with his jumper, hitting all but one of his six second-half field goal tries. I've been doing this a long time, Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey said. I haven't had too many guys go off like that. That was impressive. Perkins said McCaffrey had told him, keep attacking, keep attacking. Both said Iowa's other four players on the court insisted the ball keep going to Perkins. The players were calling it, Perkins said. C-Mac, Connor McCaffrey, Aaron, Ulysses, Peyton, Sanford, Chris, Murray, Phil, Rebraca. They were just calling the plays. I was just going with it. It was, okay, this guy's cooking, Fran McCaffrey said. They were yelling out plays to me that should be running for him, so they recognized that, okay, this guy's on fire. We're going to him. Nobody else is shooting the ball right now. And for a while, that was the case. Perkins scored eight straight points for his team as it turned a 65-62 deficit to a 70-68 lead. After two Rebraca free throws, Iowa was 26 of 30, Perkins made two more foul shots and a jumper for a 76-73 lead with 2.58 left. But this one went to the last tick. After Matthew Mayer's three-pointer tied the game at 76, Sanford stuck a three with 1.30 left, and the Hawkeyes led the rest of the way. And in high school wrestling, boys state duels. Hooray for West Delaware. Hawks return to Class 2A duels title match by K.J. Pilcher of the Gazette in Coralville. Win, win, hooray. West Delaware broke its huddle with a jovial hooray shouted by the Hawks. Not the intense or menacing mantra you'd expect from wrestlers. That's Cameron Guther for you, West Delaware Jeff Voss said about the Hawks' top-ranked heavyweight that the start of the cheer. It's a fun group. They're having fun down here. Second-ranked West Delaware had plenty to celebrate, earning a fifth straight trip to the Iowa High School Athletic Association's Class 2A state duels finals Saturday at Extreme Arena. The Hawks opened with a dominant win over No. 7 Webster City and outlasted No. 3 Sergeant Bluff Luton, 40-29, in the semifinals. It feels great, 138-pound senior Carson Turnis said. There's a little something more to it this year. I don't know why. I'm feeling great right now. The post-match shout came after a recent event at Rival Independence. Guther said the team didn't know what to say. The word just popped out, and now it stuck. They caught on to it, Guther said. Everybody getting down to this since we won. It's good to be part of this group. It's really fun. I love it. The Hawks lineup consists of six seniors. Guther, Turnus, 120-pounder Carson Less, Logan Payton at 160, Will Ward at 195, and 220-pounder Grant Northberg are among the seniors who maintain the high bar set when they enter the program. The senior class really contributed a lot of different ways over the last four years, Voss said. I'm so happy for them, as seniors, to be back in the finals. Sergeant Bluff Luton tried to snap the final streak. The Warriors went toe-to-toe with the Hawks for most of the duel. Bo Codem, 132, and Xavion Ellington, 170, won by major decision, while 145-pounder Ty Codeman and Garrett McHugh at 182 added pins for a 2016 lead at the midway point. West Delaware took control with three straight wins and four in the next five bouts. Ward and Goether record pins that sandwiched Northburg's 3 0 decision over Mario Rangel. Ward clinched a body lock and decked Gage Hoffman in 235. Goether needed 135 to pin Sean Zimmerman. After a forfeit, Braden Morey posted a 143 fall over Cam Kionkenshan at 113 and a 37 26 lead with two matches remaining. The Hawks won eight bouts with bonus points in six. It's awesome, said Turnus, who scored two takedowns in the final forty seconds to beat Aiden McRoberts, nine to one, to tie the duel, four and four after two matches. I love seeing our guys push themselves to their best and get after kids. When we do that, we're an unbeatable team. West Delaware was finally able to put its best lineup on the mat. The team's next man in mentality carried them through the regular season filled with injuries. The Hawks res- resembled the team Voss anticipated. This is the first time, maybe one other time all year, we had all our state place winners in the lineup together, Voss said. For them all to come together, it shows what they can do. West Delaware faced top-ranked Osage last night in the finals. It was the first time since 2019 the championship bout didn't feature two Wamac conference teams. Flipping back to the Insight page today, and a column from Kurt Ulrich, who lives in rural Jackson County and whose book, The Iowa State Fair, is available from the University of Iowa Press. Mr. Ulrich writes, let's talk about time passing. As an elderly man, I worry entirely too much about time and secondarily about the annoying thing we call mortality. Once a concept, now a harsh reality for those my age. Until just a few years ago, I believe mortality was for others, not for me. So let us talk, you and I, about humility, about life, about time passing. Recently, I was chatting it up with a couple of employees at my bank. Two bright, delightful women, one in her late 20s and the other I'd guess to be 50 or so. "'The subject of age came up and I asked the younger woman, "'How old do you think I am?' "'This is where the clouds opened up "'and torrential rains of humility fell heavily all around. "'Well, you're wise,' the young woman said, "'so I'd say you're about eighty. "'Oh, my. I'll leave this little scene alone. "'However, I will carry it with me for a long time.' "'Yesterday, while in my usual chair, reading a magazine, "'I caught a bit of movement out of the corner of my eye. "'It was a snow-glow moment. "'About thirty feet away, in a field in front of my house, A lone deer was slowly making her way west across the snowy tundra, a light dusting of new snow on her back. Then came another, then another, single file, making their gentle, deliberate way through swirling snow, destination unknown. All told, nine passed in front of me, unaware that an old man stopped what he was doing and watched in awe as the very definition of grace stopped by. Time is an extraordinary concept. At this moment, there are good people somewhere on earth gathered in cemeteries, listening to heartfelt words about a loved one who has passed. A loved one whose history has ended. A loved one we should have known more about, been more curious. A loved one who one day will come up in conversation when someone says something like, What was the name of that guy? The guy with the long hair we used to see at the grocery store? Or, whatever happened to that one woman? You know, the pretty lunch lady up at the school. She was so nice to me. Somewhere in regional airports, there are rumpled business travelers sipping too much pricey beer. bored, luggage at their sides, television monitors blazing, volume silenced. Monotone voices from overhead audio systems calling out flights and delays, aloneness personified. Wait for me, dear. I'll be home soon. Give my love to the kids. Speaking of kids, at this moment, somewhere in the world, young boys and girls are streaming into classrooms, most never knowing that in some countries, girls are not allowed the same privileges. Another generation of second- or third-class citizens, resentful and helpless, unable to topple ignorant men, unable to show their enormous worth. And somewhere, a man of a certain age is standing in his driveway, head tipped back, gathering in as many stars as he can, enjoying the silence, looking forward to February, feeling the glow of a crescent moon and the milky way hovering low overhead. He moves toward the house, ignoring the evening chill and carefully, with sweet permission, places his right hand around the waist of a beautiful woman, hoping that when the time comes, she will agree to dance with him, maybe a slow dance, perhaps to the velvet voices of Frank Sinatra or Nat King Cole, a dance now and forever, a comfortable cadence known only to the two of them, a dance to the end of time. From the Iowa Today, 106-year-old woman's secret to living long life, stay busy, by Melinda Wickman of the Williamsburg Journal-Tribune. When Ida Trimpey Strunk turned 100 years old in 2016, she said, I won't be here for 101. Seven years later, the Homestead native and Williamsburg resident is preparing to celebrate her 107th birthday on February 12th. When asked the secret to living so long, she said she doesn't know, but her advice to younger generations is to keep working, stay busy. Her memories are full of a lifetime spent following that advice. She was born February 12, 1916, the daughter of Otto and Rosina von Ossentrimpe, south of Homestead in Iowa County, the third of 11 children. Strunk had four brothers and six sisters. She is the only one still living. She went to nearby St. John's Lutheran School, a one-room parochial school. About 50 other kids attended. She attended St. John's through 8th grade, and her formal education ended there. I didn't go to high school, she said. It was too far. Conroy was six miles away and Williamsburg was 10 miles away. I would have to live in town. She recalled having one dress to wear to school and an older dress to wear at home. When she got home from school each day, she changed into her older dress. I wore one dress all week, she said. Strunk's oldest sister, Edna, was born in 1912 and her siblings continued to arrive through 1930. Strunk helped care for her brothers and sisters as well as helping around the house and on the family farm. We had a big vegetable garden and we all helped. There weren't any weeds in that garden, she said. Fruits and vegetables were canned for the family pantry and a 20-gallon crock was filled with shredded cabbage for sauerkraut. Meat came from animals butchered on the farm and clothing was sewn by hand. Monday was wash day. Saturday was baking day, she recalled. Cleaning was every day. The family's home had a generator that supplied electricity. When Strunk was 20, she moved to Cedar Rapids and went to work in the packing department at Quaker Oats. She got paid 55 cents an hour, which was considered a good wage. Before taking the job at Quaker Oats, she interviewed for a job at a laundry service that paid 21 cents an hour. I told them I wasn't working for that, she said. She shared an apartment with several other women in Cedar Rapids and returned home on weekends. She would take a bus from Cedar Rapids to Homestead, where her father would pick her up. While living in Cedar Rapids, she met her future husband, Richard Strunk, known as Dick, while attending a dance at the Roosevelt Hotel. The couple dated for 10 months before he was transferred to South Dakota for his job. He said why don't we get married and then you can come with me ida said the couple married and moved around the country living in south dakota michigan illinois and texas ida worked a variety of jobs during this time my husband didn't want me to work but we didn't have any kids so what was i going to do i asked him what do you want me to do sit in a chair and look out the window all day so i worked she said after dick died in 1990 ida returned to williamsburg where she kept active with gardening and sewing she became an avid quilter creating dozens of quilts over the years she has lived at Highland Ridge Senior Living Community for the past eight years. Strunk takes turning 107 in stride. It feels just like it did to be 106, she said. And a few things to do this week. In the theater, open. Open is a magic act that reveals itself to be a resurrection. The magician presents myriad tricks for our entertainment, yet the performance seems to be attempting the impossible, to save the life of their partner, Jenny. But is it our faith in these illusions enough to rewrite the past? That's 2.30 today and February 12th, and 7.30 p.m. on Thursday to Saturday at Mirror Box Theater, 1200 Ellis Boulevard Northwest in Cedar Rapids, $20. In music, Fellow Pinions is a contemporary folk duo with a keen and bucolic sense of vocal harmony and songcraft. The live performance is a whimsically emotional escapade through the chasms of our feelings. That is 7 p.m. today at CSPS Hall, 1103 3rd Street Southeast in Cedar Rapids, cost is $15 in advance or $18 at the door. In Community, Oral History Live featuring Peter Tian. Peter Tian is a funeral director, author, and a mental health professional and trauma specialist. In 2011, he received the designation of diplomat from the National Center for Crisis Management and the American Academy of Experts in Traumatic Stress. He is president of Tian Funeral Home and founder of the International Mass Fatality Center in America Ready. That's at 6 p.m. today at CSPS. 1103 3rd Street Southeast in Cedar Rapids. The cost is $5 to $7. In hobby, Linn County Master Gardeners Tree Selection and Maintenance. Linn County Master Gardener Mike Anderson will talk about how to select the best tree for your site and how to care for it once it's planted. That's 630 to 730 PM Thursday at the Ladd Library, 3750 Williams Boulevard Southwest in Cedar Rapids, and that is free. And in music, Molly Lovett, with musical influences including Taylor Swift, Marin Morris and Carrie Underwood, Molly Lovett brings her unyielding confidence and passion for creating music. That's 7 30 p.m. Friday at Riverside Casino and Golf Resort, 3184 Highway 22 in Riverside, and that is free. And that brings me to the end of reading the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Sunday, February 5th, 2023. I have been your reader, Sharon Faldudo, reading to you from my kitchen table in Coralville. I haven't heard from my dog yet this morning, so I guess she's still asleep. She often comes out here in the middle and walks around in the kitchen with her toenails clicking on the floor. Remember that you can access a recording of this or any other Iris recording at any time on our website, iowaradioreading.org. We do welcome your comments. Thank you for listening.